Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another exciting episode of SFP Now. Uh, with me today is uh, Dave Rossi, um, a former employee of the 24th century. I, you know, he worked on Star Trek with uh, Rick Berman and, um, and lots and lots of other people. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Ian, for having me. Oh, it's, it's great having you. Uh, I guess the first question I got to ask is, how did you actually become involved in Star Trek? Uh, as a fan or professionally? Um, well, let's say as a fan first and then professionally, we'll go. Uh, I've been a, a lifelong Star Trek fan, and um, I discovered it at a very early age. Uh, I was, I don't know what, seven or eight years old, I think, and um, I, I had heard about the show from a friend of, a friend of mine and, uh, and then discovered it on television without knowing what it was. And the very first episode I saw was This Side of Paradise, and uh, I caught it pretty much right from the beginning. I mean, they beamed down into this field, which, first of all, beaming down was, you know, I mean, I was I was instantly, what is this? And, and I've, I've always been a huge kind of sci-fi comic fan. And so, um, and then I see the guy with the pointed ears and I, you know, but, but what really captivated me was Captain Kirk. I mean, it, especially in that episode. Um, here's this guy who's losing control and he, uh, you know, ultimately just through force of will, uh, kind of regains control, but it also spoke to this relationship he had with the ship. And I don't know, something about that whole thing spoke to me. And I, I dove in really, really deeply. Now, of course, back then there was no on demand. So, you know, I, I watched whatever episode they happened to have on TV um, and then started meeting fans at, at conventions, maybe once a year. And, and it was a wild west for, for the licensing mm-hmm. side of things. You know, nothing was, um, nothing was official or or sanctioned by any of the studios or or the makers. People were just putting stuff out, and and so uh, so you could find all all kinds of crazy materials. But I I just uh, became obsessed with the show, and uh, you know I know I know a lot of friends like even in uh, middle school and high school. You know they have this very iconic. There's a very iconic image of Farrah Fawcett. Uh, uh-huh. She's in this red bathing suit and she's, you know, it was a very iconic poster that sold millions. And I know most of my friends had it on their wall and I had a picture of the Enterprise. I mean, if that says anything. Um, so uh, so that was my, you know, I, I've loved Star Trek my entire life. Um, how I came to work on the show is really just happenstance. I, I had no um, I had no plan to get involved in Hollywood or the industry. And um, I had. I had gotten out of the Air Force and went back home to my home uh, city of Buffalo, New York, 
and there were no jobs. It, it was at the time kind of a, a depressed blue collar situation, and a bit night now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, and so a, a friend of mine got me a job as a, a what we call a repo man. I was um, going to houses and repossessing furniture from people who you know were slacking on their payments and. And it was awful, awful work. And um, and at the time that that was going on, my father, who was in his late fifties, um, received a a letter from a man in California who enclosed a an old black and white photo, and it said uh, it said I don't know if you remember me, but but we were in eighth grade together, and and I've enclosed a picture of our baseball team, and those were the happiest days of my life. And I am of a certain means now, and I would love for you to help me get all of these people back together for a celebration so we could all kind of connect again. And so they found uh, all but one or two guys who had died in World War II. They found them all. Wow. And um, if they weren't already living in Buffalo, they flew them in. This guy had uh, had quite a bit of money. And they rented out a, a convention center for the weekend and they found some of their old teachers, and so, I mean, it was a, it was all weekend long, and it was really quite amazing. And they, they were all wearing name tags because they couldn't recognize each other. A lot of them hadn't seen each other in you know literally fifty years, and um, and so uh, they needed someone to record it. And so I grabbed my tape machine and and recorded the entire weekend for them. And amidst that recording, my father said to this man, you know, my son is uh, in kind of a dead-end job here, and he doesn't like it. Do you have anything for him where you're living on the West Coast right now? The man was from California. His name was uh, Chuck DeRose, and he said, uh, yeah, have him come out to to California, and I'll put him to work in the construction business. And so that's what I did. In September of 1989, I packed my car and drove out to California, and he literally made me a ditch digger for the first few weeks I was there. And then uh, we'd have dinner, and and he would kind of uh, give me little tips about the, the construction business, and and kind of gauged my interest and and where I might fit. And and I started slowly kind of moving up the ladder, and I became a customer service representative. And that was about eight or ten months in, and I saw that there was going to be a Star Trek convention at. Um, in the Los Angeles Hilton, and so I thought, you know what, I'm gonna. Um, I was living in the high desert area of California doing construction, and I didn't really know anyone. I was there for about eight months, and uh, and and so I thought, you know, I'm gonna go spend the weekend in Los Angeles and go to this Star Trek convention, and it was just between um, the season three and four um, end and start of Next Generation, so it was Best of Both Worlds had just aired. And they had this convention. It was all the next generation people. And Gene Roddenberry was there and speaking. And, and so I went to this convention. And while I was there, I uh, I met a guy named Eric Stilwell, who worked on the show as a script coordinator. But he was also the um, co-writer of the episode Yesterday's Enterprise. Cracking episode. Huh? Great episode. And, uh, of course, one of my favorites. And so we started talking. And, and I don't know, for whatever reason... Um, he kind of glommed on to me and we spent the weekend together. His dad was visiting for his birthday. And, and so the, the three of us and a couple other people, we, we hung around the whole weekend and, and, uh, just kind of shared our passion for Star Trek. And, uh, cause Eric has a very, Eric still had a very rich history with Star Trek. He had started, uh, 
international fan club and um, that I belonged to, you know, when I was younger. So it was very funny that we, we ended up meeting. And, um, and that was, you know, like a Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And the following Monday I went to work and we were all called into the office around 530 in the morning. And they gave us our last checks and said the company was bankrupt. Oh, and um, and so I called. I you know I didn't want to go back to Buffalo with my tail between my legs. I called Eric and I said, "Do you remember we hung out this weekend?" He said, "Yeah." Did you want to come and get a tour of this you know the lot? And I said, "Well, I was hoping for something a little more." And uh, he got me an interview with the Paramount Page staff, which is the tour guide staff. And so I went there. I got a part time job as a tour guide at Paramount. I did that for about 10 months, and then a position opened on Star Trek The Next Generation in the fifth season for a production assistant, which is basically a runner, a gopher, and I got that job. I did that for a year, and then I became Mary Howard's assistant. Mary Howard was the line producer, and at that time, we were just splitting. Uh, we were just getting ready to, to get DS9 going. And Next Gen was going to come to an end the following season. And so I was Mary's assistant for a few years. And then Rick Berman asked me to be his assistant after his assistant left. I did that for a few months. But then Rick realized that, um, you know, one thing that he was running, first of all, everything. He had two shows going and then every couple of years a movie. And the show was so hot at the time with critics, with fans, that the studio wanted to exploit that. They wanted mm-hmm. to capitalize on it. And so every department was was geared up to do something with Star Trek, and Rick just didn't have the time to meet with all of these departments. So he created a position for me, <coughs> excuse me, called um, Supervisor of Star Trek Projects. And so whenever the studio wanted to do something, whether it was with the licensing group, whether it was location-based entertainment, whether it was uh, marketing, publicity, whatever it was, when somebody had a plan to do something, they met with me. And then I would either just run with it or I would bring it to Rick if I needed a little more guidance or what his take on it was. Um, but I got involved with a lot of great projects and and met a lot of great people. And then when Star Trek finally ended, I mean, I, I went all the way through from the fifth season of Next Gen until uh, the last day of Enterprise. And... Um, ending up as an associate producer on Enterprise along with my my um, Star Trek projects duties. And uh, and I was contacted by a group at Paramount that did location-based entertainment. And so and I've been working for them now uh, mm-hmm. since 2005, 2006. Uh, but that's pretty much, in a nutshell, the that side of it. And then as well, uh, right after Enterprise ended, um, CBS came to me and asked if I would produce the um, remastered original series episodes. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, I had just taken the job with this other group and there was, um, uh, there was a looming threat that I was going to have to travel quite a bit, which frankly never happened. But, uh, so I thought, you know, I better hedge my bets here if, if they want to get this done. And so I brought Mike and Denise Okuda in, uh, who of course are, uh, you know, incredible wealth of knowledge as far as, you know, what the original intent of a lot of these creators were. And so I, th- I felt that was very important, and we talked about it kind of at length. And and uh, and so we did the remastered project, where we replaced a lot of the shots of the Enterprise and a lot of matte paintings and things. It's, it's excellent work. I mean, I've, um, I've, I've been watching the, these box sets 
uh, since it came out. Um, I've got the Blu-rays, so you know it's it's brilliant Great. work. Are you, know. are you enjoying them? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been, I've enjoyed them. I'm, I'm actually uh, rewatching Next Generation now uh, for the first time in like ten years, and I'm about midway through season two now. So. Yeah, that was that was Mike and Denise. That uh, the Next Generation remastered stuff uh, uh, again through CBS Digital, who did fantastic work. Uh, but Mike and Denise shepherded that. I, I uh, wasn't part of that one. Well, you know, I, yeah, I'm I'm similar to you, as in I've been watching Star Trek probably since around about eight years old. But I um I I seen it um in syndication. Um, yeah, I didn't see it when it when it was first airing um in in the UK um because um it it didn't start airing in the UK until after the show was cancelled. I don't think in the states. Um, and I was actually born the year it was cancelled. <laughs> Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the funny thing is, uh, my mum told my late mother told me this fun story that you know, you know about about me getting into Star Trek. She says that I must have gotten into Star Trek when I was in the womb because she used to actually watch Star Trek on on the quiet evenings at the pub where she used to work as a as a as a bartender, you know. And she was pregnant, <laughs> carrying me. So she says I probably got into Star Trek via osmosis. <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know. I don't know how uh, how I ended up with this love of these things, but you know, it's it's all been for the it's all been for the best because I've had a great uh, a great run, and I you know, it's just I don't know. There's something very special about that that show for me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's another thing, a little tip for you. You know, how you had the picture of the Enterprise instead of Farrah Fawcett. You yes, should, you should have had a double-sided poster: one side Farrah Fawcett, one side the Enterprise. I was proud of the around. Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> it's <still> around. <laughs> um, but you know, yeah, it's all like it's a really, really interesting story. Do you have any fun stories from 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 your work behind the scenes? Um, you know, sort of like um, you know, misadventures, as it were. Uh, oh yeah, there's a. Uh... Yeah, there are a lot of fun stories. Um, um, you know, uh, I'll give you a, a Jonathan Frakes. I'll tell you a Jonathan Frakes story just because uh, I'll tell you a couple of Jonathan Frakes stories because he, he's just um, he's the greatest. He, I, you know, I worked with him for years on the next gen and then uh, and then the movies. And then he came back to direct um, various episodes of the shows. And in all that time, I don't think I ever saw him angry or upset or you know, he's just a genuinely nice person and, uh, and just a joy to be around. And, um, in fact, the, ver- the very first day we started production in the fifth season, uh, it was the very first day of filming and therefore my first day meeting all these people. And as a production assistant, as a gopher, you know, you're, you're constantly literally running around the lot and, uh, delivering scripts, delivering, you know, uh, call sheets and production reports and all kinds of things. And, uh, I remember I was running to the stage with a handful of script revisions. It was in the morning and I slammed on the door to go into the stage. And on the other side, Jonathan was reaching for the handle to open it. And I smashed his fingers on the door and, uh, and that's how we met. (laughs) And, uh, he yelled a, uh, an apt expletive from the other side of the door, and uh, and so uh, he said to me something like, uh, "He said, are you are you the new PA?'" And I said, 
yeah, and he said, okay, first one's free, but next time I'm going to kick you in the nuts, or, you know, (laughs) but he he was, uh, God, he was so nice, Uh, but one of the things that would happen is, um, if he would come up to the office during lunch sometimes, and, uh, and read some of his fan mail there, and there was this kind of rule that if a fan found out, you know, if he got a letter at his home address, versus from the studio, he couldn't answer it because it would verify where he lived. And so those letters, typically actors wouldn't respond to. And, you know, who knows how fans find these things out. But uh, And so, and I'm sure it's much easier today. (laughs) Uh, Back then you had to dig for it a little. But um, so he was reading his fan mail and he came across this one letter. And it was from a, a, a boy named David and he was from Buffalo, which is really me. And he was like, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And he had written this letter to Jonathan saying, Dear Commander Riker, um, I am having my birthday's eighth or ninth birthday or something. And I'm wondering if you could come to my birthday party. Aww. And he left his phone number. And so Jonathan kind of read it out loud. And he said, isn't that a cute letter? And we were all, we were in a kind of a bullpen. There was uh uh, let's see, one, two PAs and three assistants and shared this space in this kind of big open space. And Jonathan was in there. And and we all said, well, you, you got to call him. And he was like, no, I'm not going to call him. And we badgered him and badgered him for the next 10 minutes until he said, OK, OK, I'm going to call him. So he picked up the phone and dialed this little boy's number. And on the East Coast, it was already, I don't know, like four or five o'clock. And so all of us immediately, all of us in the room, each picked up our own phones and jumped on the line. And so we're all listening in. And this woman answers the phone and says, hello. And Jonathan says, hi, this is Jonathan Frakes. I play Commander Reich. And this woman just started yelling, David, David, Commander Reich on the phone. And so this little kid picks up the phone and he says, and very meekly, he says, hello. And Jonathan says, hi, David, it's Commander Riker. Silence. The kid is just (laughs) silent. And he said, "Um, I got your letter about coming to your birthday party. Silence. And the mother starts going, David, say something. It's Commander Riker. (laughs) Say something to him. And this little boy finally said, okay. (laughs) And Jonathan said, well, I'm sorry. He said, we're patrolling the neutral zone and I'm not going to be able to make it back to earth in time for your party. And the kid said, okay. And the mother was like, thank you so much for calling. He said, I, I just, I, I got the letter through subspace. And I mean, he really played it up and he was so sweet. And so finally he said, I have to get back on duty and, you know, data needs me or something. And, uh, and here I have to get back to the bridge or something. And he hung up the phone. And I can just imagine being, can you imagine being that kid and getting a call from, you know, back in my day would have been getting a call from Captain Kirk or Superman, Mm -hmm. you know, my little head would have exploded. Yep. (laughs) And I can just imagine that kid going to school the next day and saying, you know, I got a call from Commander Riker and, you know, everyone beating him up for being, you know, (laughs) liar, liar. Yep. Uh, But it was, uh, but that was Jonathan. And so he would, and he was also... Jonathan is also uh, quite a prankster, and uh, he <laughs> he and Rick Berman are very close, and so he could you know come up and and raz Rick a little in ways none of us could ever dare do, and so 
the PA is kept uh, every season. We um, we have this thing called a rubber band ball, and you just take rubber bands and you kind of tie them in knots, and then it gets bigger and bigger, like a mm-hmm. basketball. Yeah. And, just, and you start wrapping rubber bands around it, and it gets bigger and bigger. And so it was something that had been carried on for five seasons or so, and it was about the size, just a little smaller than a bowling ball. And we kept it on the desk. And any time somebody would come up, they would see it. They would bounce it on the floor. We were on the second floor. And Rick would open his door because it would make the whole room shake. And and Rick would open his door and say, stop doing that. Please stop doing that. I'm trying to read or I'm doing notes or I'm in a meeting or whatever it was. And so Jonathan came up one time and he grabbed it and he was going to start bouncing it. And we were all like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Rick will open the door and complain. And so Jonathan wound up like a pitcher on a baseball team and he threw the ball at Rick's door. (laughs) He just, just rifled it at the door. And we all looked at, I mean, I remember everybody's eyes being so wide as he was winding up to do it. And we all got up and ran. All of us got up and ran out of the office, ran to the other end of the hall. We heard Rick come out of his office and go, what the hell? What was that? And Jonathan was there alone going, I don't know what you're talking about, Rick. (laughs) What do you you mean? As this big balls bouncing around the room and everything. But, uh, but yeah, so, um, those are always those are great memories uh, uh, with Jonathan and um, and you know we did a lot of special things too like um, we 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 did a lot with uh, organizations like Make a Wish, mm-hmm. which uh, are organizations that grant wishes to terminally ill children, and you know as as heartbreaking as the you know you're meeting these kids and their families and. And it's on the one hand, it's heartbreaking, but on the other hand, it's it was so I don't know fortifying. It was so um, magical to see these children light up at meeting their heroes, yeah. and uh, and so there was a there was a guy who uh, there was a guy who worked on the show. He worked in special effects. His name was Richard uh, Cronister. and he would fire up all the lights on the bridge and get everything ready. Uh, before shooting and um, and he was an older man but he was just he was a very soft spoken and you know, he was like a mouse you never knew he was there but he was just the sweetest guy and so he came up with this idea that and he and he, he came up with it as kind of a joke on me which was you know I'm a huge Star Trek fan and one of the first times I went on the bridge it was covered because we were filming we were on vacation the show didn't start filming until uh i think it was june and i started in may and so i went down to the bridge but all the chairs were covered with you know drop cloths and and the carpet was covered but i still sat in the captain's chair and you're still looking around and there's all the panels and i mean it was you know (laughs) it, it was magical in its own right and so i said just as a joke i'm sitting in the captain's chair there's nobody there it's an empty completely empty set and I said something like, you know, engage or, you know, something as I'm sitting in this chair. Make it well, so. Dick was, and Dick was behind the set and he started lighting the lights. <laughs> I completely freaked out. I, I stood up and I was, I, I couldn't comprehend what was happening. I was like, what is going on? And he came out from behind and that's where we met and he was laughing. And he said, oh, you must be a fan if you know engage, you know, and we, we started talking. And we had already received things from the last season that the previous PAs had kind of put set into motion. And some of these things were coming. He said, you know, we could do this for the kids. You bring them to the set 
and tell them, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the tech line is, you know, computer, you know, power up the bridge, whatever we wanted to say. And so we would have these kids come to the bridge and they would say it and he would turn everything on. And the look on their faces was, you know, and then Patrick Stewart would come out or Brent Spiner would come out. And I mean, it was just uh, those are also memories that I'll never uh, I'll never forget. Just just and, and then that carried through on every show. I mean, we did it for. Uh, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise. I mean, we 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 did a lot with a lot of charities, and so um, as hard as it is to do, because then you would get, you know, well, you would get these painful letters later that, you know, a few months later that, oh, we wanted to thank you for, you know, granting his last wish, or you know, she just passed away, and Aww. you know, she wanted to be buried in a Janeway shirt, or she, I mean, it was just just heartbreaking. I mean, really. Uh, but but knowing that you you could be a part of of granting that child something that that you know buoyed them and and they they held on to until the end was it was very rewarding in a lot of ways. So that was I don't mean sorry I didn't mean to be bringing it on a downer note, but but uh, it but yeah. So there were things like that. Um, yeah, um, there were times where uh, uh, I made certain errors that could have come back to bite me, but through I don't know. Destiny saved my life. Um, Michael Westmore, who was the makeup artist for the show, he sent up two um, when we were doing the Bajoran. He was working on what the Bajoran nose would be for Ensign Row, mm-hmm. and he he sent up two plaster cutouts of her face that went from you know like the, uh, just above her her eyebrows down to like her upper lip and. And then he put the, this nose prosthetics on. And so he had, he brought them both to Rick Berman's office. And, and and then eventually Rick came out and said, okay, this is the one we're going to use. So bring this to Michael and tell him this is, this is the one. So I grabbed it and I put it in my bicycle and strapped it down and drove to the makeup trailer. But what I didn't realize is that it wasn't a prosthetic yet. It was clay. And so as I, you know, on my bike strap, was right over it and I'm hitting speed bumps on the way. And, you know, so by the time I get there and I took it off, the nose was kind of (laughs) mashed and I thought, Oh no. And you know, here I am a PA. I thought, Oh my God, I'm going to, first it was Jonathan's fingers. Now it's the Bajoran nose. I, you know, I'm going to be fired. I'm I'm sure it's just a matter of time. (laughs) And, And so I went into the makeup trailer and Jerry Quist, who was Mike's kind of right hand man was there. And I said, Hey Jerry, I, I, uh, you know, I did this, look what I did to this nose. What should I do? And he said, well, you're going to have to bring it to Mike and he is going to, you know, he's going to lose it, but you're just going to have to go deal with it. And so bring it over to the makeup lab, which was this area set on a stage where they would kind of bake these prosthetics through these big ovens and uh, um, prosthetic ovens that you would put these rubber, these clay pieces in and turn them into this prosthetic material uh, that would turn them into masks that the actors would wear. And so, Mike was overworking in the lab. And so I, I, you know, it was like the long mile. I mean, I, I walk over there just defeated and Mike Westmore is, um, probably one of the kindest people you would ever meet ever in any business, let alone in life. And, uh, but I wasn't there long enough to, to really get a gauge of who all these people were. And Jerry Quist called Mike in the lab while I was walking over there and said, Hey, the PA just came. He, whatever, squished the nose, the Bajoran nose, and he's really freaked out about it. So play it up. And so <laughs> I walked in, and and Mike Westmore, who is just this 
just this prince of a man um, chewed me up one side and down the other and just like, I mean, you know, and I, I'm sure I looked like I was a, a, a big lost puppy about to start crying. And finally he started laughing. He said, no, Jerry told me, don't worry, come on over here. And, and as it turns out, the, the, the way that the nose had been squished, the, uh, the letters, there were letters underneath the, the strap that said, I don't know, made in Taiwan or something. And, uh, and so they had, left these weird impressions in the nose. And so Mike took this little instrument out and he said, you know, he did this little thing, do, 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 do. And it was fixed. And he said, uh, and I said, well, that's not what it looked like. And he said, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. <laughs> so, so I was kind of a, the, the creator of Ensign Rose, Bajor nose in in a lot of ways. <laughs> so <laughs> wacky stories like that. that that's fun. Um, I mean, you know, when you were talking about Jonathan Frakes before, that kind of struck a chord because I, I actually met him um, one time at a convention. He, he, he does come across as a really nice, warm guy. I didn't get to spend that much time with him. He was literally less than five minutes in the signing autographs queue and watching him talk. And he, he just comes across as a really warm-hearted guy. Oh, he is. And, and he's one of those guys who, you know, the more successful he became... Uh, the the more he spread it around. I mean, he was just just a lovely. He's just a lovely guy. He's just really. It's always exciting when you see Jonathan because it's it's not just that you know he's a nice guy and he's fun to hang around with, but he's unpredictable. He's mischievous. He's funny. He's you know. It's just a great time to hang out with him. Mm-hmm. Um, one 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 things that I've always wanted to ask. I mean, you you was a as you said you was Rick Berman's production assistant for a while, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, I'm not sure what year you would have been his production assistant before you sort of like got given your other responsibilities um, and went on to be an associate producer. But one of the things that always sort of like bugged me is um, I've been covering Star Trek and sci-fi shows on the internet for a while with, with Sci-Fi Post on that and, and now the podcast that I've been doing since 2009. And one of the things that always strikes me is you, you, you write up some some quotes of uh, of say Rick Berman or or stuff like that, and then you get the um then then you get the sort of like typical fan fan response of oh this is gonna suck and he's ruining Star Trek and and all this stuff and I'm just wondering how much of that um that that sort of reaction you guys in the production were were actually um you know whether whether any of it got to you or how much of it got to you or. Well, there's a, I, I think there's an interesting, and you can see it happening right now with Discovery. Yeah. There's an interesting thing that happens when um, when a new Star Trek series launches. And, you know, as a fan of, of anything, I, as I said before, I'm, a, I'm also a big comic book fan. And, um, and Superman is kind of my meat and potatoes there. And so... For me, it's Superman movies, or you know, when 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 a, a series comes out that depicts these characters. In my mind, there's certain things that need to happen that would make me happy. And in Star Trek, it's no different, right? When there's a new series that comes out, you, as a fan personally, you expect certain things, certain hallmarks, certain whatever it is that makes it Star Trek for you. And there's no way that that's going to be accommodated across millions of people. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you get this, um, you know, you get this rub between fans where uh, this is Star Trek, that isn't Star Trek, uh, you know, this thing made it horrible or this thing made it great. And with every new series that came out, 
there was there was disdain for from some portion of it. But when we were doing it, you know, I mean, back in the, the mid 90s, um, because once Deep Space Nine launched, it was only running a season before then Voyager yep. kind of came out. Um, but the Internet wasn't a thing yet. So it was all still fan letters. And, you know, I mean, there's only so many fan letters you can read and they go to different places around the lot. And so it's not like we could just hop online like today. You know, if you're a, if you're a creator or writer or producer of, of any TV show, you can just jump online and see what people think. And, and believe me, you'll hear it. Right. And 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 typically, I think negative voices are louder on the Internet than than positive ones. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. But. But for us, um, I don't know that the goodwill of the show, of the franchise, seemed to outweigh any negative impact that, that people would write about. And, 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 and certainly there was negative impact, as I said. I mean, people, there's no way to make everyone happy as a fan. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember when we did Star Trek Remastered for the original series, and we could go on the internet and see, you know, you'd launch an episode and then you, we'd immediately go, what are, what are people thinking? What are people? And it's a mistake to do that. Because all it does is wear you down and, and you get a lot of negativity from it. Uh, I mean, certainly there were constructive things there that we would look at. But, but the majority of it was just, was just anger. It was just, you know, uh, people saying we've destroyed their childhood and we've, you know, um, <laughs> by changing things. And so you have, to, you have to balance it, you know, with a dose of reality. You know, these things move on. And look, I'm, I'm just as much to blame. I mean, I, I recently on Twitter got into a discussion with, with a couple of people about, uh, about the original series Enterprise appearing on Discovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, it's um, – well, the other thing about – I'll come back to that in a second. But the other thing about the Internet that makes it hard and having these discussions through these social media platforms is – no one can read your inflection. So I think I would say the majority of times people read things online, they read it with a negative connotation. And I can say something that I think is constructive, but the person reading it hears it with a lot of anger. And that's and that's not the case. Um, you know, my point on to, to speak online, and we had a great, great conversation about it and an interesting kind of debate about it. But my point was, if I'm a fan of the original series and you're going to introduce the Enterprise on Discovery, using textured, uh, texture maps and lighting, you could introduce the original series Enterprise in a way that makes it fit the aesthetic of Discovery without changing the ship's structure so much. Um, and so if you're not a fan of the original series, what's the difference? Because you don't really care about that Enterprise. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean so much to you. So I was, I was trying to make the point, why not just throw that bone to an original series fan. If somebody from the original series is watching this, that ship really means a lot. And so give it to them in the way that they, they know it, you know, instead of, you know, adjusting the impulse engines or changing the pylons and, you know, all all these things they did. Now they may have a great reason for doing it. I don't, you know, who knows, but it's one of those things where for me, I got caught up in the moment of, but that's my enterprise. But the truth of the matter is, these things are going to evolve. They're always going to evolve. And it doesn't, it doesn't make them less of anything. It doesn't, um, you know, the fact that you're not getting what you want doesn't make it a bad show. And I think that's the, 
that's the problem people face. If if they don't get what they want out of something, they immediately equate that with bad, and that's not true. It could be, you know, certainly with Discovery, the acting, the production value is just through the roof. I mean, it every is. cent is in front of the camera, and um, and it's it's amazing in that way. But if but if you're not getting that one thing that that whatever makes it Star Trek for you or, or that you need out of it, you know, people will say, well, it sucks. And that's, you know, <laughs> so it's hard to, it's hard to fight all of that. It's hard to, but you don't really need to fight it. You just need to, as a creator, just, just do what you're going to do. And, and because there's, there's just no way to, to please everyone. So you, you do what makes, what feels right for you and, and, and take it from there. I mean, you know, with with a discovery, it can actually understand quite a lot of it because it's meant to be set ten years before the original Star Trek, and you know, there may be changes to the uniforms. The, uh, you know, the, we we never heard of a spar drive, for example, in the original right. series. Um, I, I think it's. I still think it's kind kind of funny actually. Um, you know, um, um, a starship that runs on mushrooms. It's you know, it's kind of. <laughs> You know, so it's kind of very sixties in, in, in a sense. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I can understand where they're coming from. Um, but by the same token, I kind of I was a bit reticent about Enterprise because of all the negativity and stuff like that. But when I watched it, I really, really quite enjoyed it. Um, but I think they need to take it back to an ensemble show. Um, as opposed to having Michael Burnham um, lead, um, I think they need to go back to a bit of an ensemble show because there's a lot of cast members that are actually not really getting much, and then there's those few that are getting quite a lot. And right. you know, it just be you know, it'd just be interesting to sort of like work on the stories of Stamets a bit more and um, and and Tingy and and uh, the other. Well, characters. it's interesting. I think I think that um, you know Brian Fuller's um, appearance and then departure. Uh, that's a tumultuous thing because he obviously had a plan for the first season. And I think that um, they were kind of far enough down the rabbit hole before he left the show that they needed to, to carry that storyline out, whether, whether the, the production staff agreed with it or, or not, or, or felt hemmed in by it or not. I, I don't know, but, um, but I, I'm sure they felt the need that, that they needed to, you know, finish that so it'll be interesting to see what they do with season two because now it's a now it's a clean slate um i i think it's you know for me and this is just a general this is not a, a slam on discovery it's just i i would prefer to see star trek move forward i don't need these little fill-in uh you know points in history I, but you know I, again it's it's it doesn't make it a bad show it's just i would i would I would prefer to see them in the future. Yeah, do something after Voyager. Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, because the, the, the fact of the matter is they're doing prequel shows and uh, right right away by the fact that they're doing a prequel show, they're shooting themselves in the foot creatively because they, by doing a prequel show, they kind of have to adhere to so much continuity. Whereas if they if they um, move forward, they're not as tight to that. So right, so you, you, you either adhere to the continuity or you revise the continuity and... And in both cases, that that's problematic for, you know, you know, for somebody like me who I, I, I can't tell you how ravenous I was to learn about that universe when I was younger. 
And so the Franz Joseph Technical Manual, the, the Starfleet Medical Reference Manual, the, I mean, all of these, I mean, I dug in deep and I wanted to know how phasers worked and what were they and how did warp drive work and what was the formula to figure out how fast warp speed was. And, uh, you know, I would teach Star Trek school at my house to kids in the neighborhood. I mean, <laughs> it was really, really um it meant a lot to me, and that shit meant a lot to me. I did a, um, I did a report in school when, when I was a freshman in high school. I, you know, the teacher gave us this, this assignment to do a, a theme about something. And mine was, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture had just come out, and uh, my theme was The Enterprise and Her Marvelous Machines. And so I was using blueprints and I was talking about magnetomic amplification crystals. And I mean, I, I mean, I was, you know, I, I was a, just a, uh, in heaven writing this thing. And of course, when it came time to turn them in, um, you know, we turned them in on a Friday or whatever. And that following Monday, um, we, the teacher comes out and he's got his, the stack of papers and he says, you know, I've, I've read everybody's and there's a lot of great stuff here, but there's one that really stood out for me. And it just shows that when you're passionate about something, um, it, it can really shine through and, and, and encourage your, your, uh, your work. And he said, I'd like someone to come up and read from their thing. And, you know, I had no idea. And he said, I'd like, you know, Mr. Rossi, would you come up and read from your thing? And I thought, oh, my God, please don't make me read about the I'm a freshman <laughs> in high school. Please don't make me read about the Enterprise and phasers in front of all these people. You know? um, but he, you know, he coaxed me up there and, you know, it was high school. So nobody was listening anyway. But, um, and I, you know, it was a it's just this this passion that you have for something. Um, when it's that important to you, it's easy for people today to say, oh, who cares about continuity or, you know, if Gene Roddenberry could have done the Enterprise differently, he would have if he would have had a different budget. So that's what they're doing today. Well, that's mm -hmm. all very true, but they didn't. And it doesn't look that way. And to me, that's the Enterprise. And so I, I, I understand both sides of the equation. I understand that you know, certainly as working on next gen, you know, right. The visual effects were available. So you use them, you use those tools to, to, you know, enhance everything. Um, but it's, it's, I don't know. It seems like a very easy thing for, for people who aren't fans of that specific era or that thing to kind of dismiss the rest of us who that is very important to the look of it and the way it works. And, you know, things like intraship beaming and holographic projections and, you know, they're, they're doing it because they can do it. And does it change the story? No. Does it, does it alter how the dramatics work? No. Um, but it steps on the toes of something I spent hours and hours and hours learning. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, for me, it's, 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 a, there's a bit of a sadness that, that accompanies it, but in the same breath, you have to, you have to kind of let go and say, you know, there are fans today. There are people who are experiencing Star Trek in first run for the first time. Mm -hmm. And this is their Star Trek. And, you know, they have every right to be as happy about it and as thrilled about it and as all engulfed by it as I was at, at my age. So my stuff is still there. You know, um, I don't know. I was looking at the Discovery Enterprise the other day. And look, regardless of it's still a beautiful ship. And so, 
you know, let's see what they're going to do with it and, well, and take it from yeah, and take it from there. I think it's better than the uh, version that they use for the J.J. Uh, Abrams films. Yeah, you know, from from a design point of view, it's better than the J.J. Abrams version. But I, I'm kind of with you. I prefer the original, and I even prefer the Enterprise A. Um, so like, um, I kind of like the Enterprise A because that wasn't too far removed from the original design either. You know, the nacelles were a little bit different. I think. Right. Right. But, yeah. Uh, so we'll see. So we'll see what they do with it. But it's but it's an interesting. You know, it's you're always going to have this for every new Star Trek series that comes out. You're you're going to have a group of people who uh, have a certain disdain for it because it's not striking whatever key they need, and you're going to have people that simply love it because this is their Star Trek now, and um, you know the latter is better because it keeps it keeps it alive, it keeps it relevant, it keeps it uh, you know in the public eye and in in CBS's eye, which is you know as long as people are consuming it, they'll make more. I mean, you know, like what are you saying about seeing seeing it first run? I remember how excited I was when Next Generation first came into the UK back in, I think it was around about 87, um, 88, because we were getting it on video before it actually came to television here. And um, then we ended up and ended up having to pay a subscription fee to see it on television after a couple of years because the BBC stopped showing it. Stop showing first run episodes, so it went, over to, it went over to Sky, so we had to pay subscriptions. So we were kind of like in the boat that everyone in the States is in now, <laughs> right? In, in that we had to pay for it, <laughs> right? So, well, I remember, well, I didn't see the original series first run, I saw it in reruns as well. It was a, a 71 or 72, I would have been six or seven years old when I, when I first saw it, uh, something like that, but. Uh, but Next Generation is a perfect example. I was in the Air Force when Next Generation aired, and uh, and I had a bunch of people over to watch the premiere in my room, and uh, I hated it. I hated Next Generation. I hated Picard. I, I liked Data. That was pretty much it. But I hated the shape of the Enterprise. I I mean, I was just, you know, who, who is this bald British guy as the captain? And I mean, you know, I... It's this thing where I've I've consumed this original series for for you know fifteen years and and then they throw this other thing at me which is you know uh, plush luxurious interior of the ship and you know Klingon on board and I, I I just you know and of course as you watch it let them tell their story let them introduce their characters of course it's you know becomes one of your favorite shows and. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing. I mean, Discovery's had one season. Let's let's let it go. Let's let it. Let's see what happens. Mm. Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to seeing what happens in the second series. You know, having the Enterprise pop up in the last scene of the of the third, of the first series was actually quite, quite a good move. Yeah, it was yeah, kind. Of, it was kind of a predictable move because they were going to do it eventually. <laughs> well, you kind of it kind of begs it by putting it in that time frame, and you know you realize Spock is her brother, so it kind of begs running into mm-hmm. them. And you know to to address that thing about uh, Spock never mentioning that he had a sister. Well, he never mentioned that he had a brother either until Star Trek it's Five. <laughs> so, it's all true. You know, it's a. Uh, so it's so like uh, it, it kind of makes me funny. Some of these, you know, you know, self-proclaimed continuity experts. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, right. Um, and anyway, I think um, you know a quick question I'd like to ask you before we talk about the animated show that you were that you tried to get up and running with uh, with with Denise and uh, Mike Kuda is um, what 
do you have any favourite episodes from the um, from the various series? You know, is there any highlights for you? Um, I would say uh, Balance of Terror is my favourite original series episode. Uh, snap. <laughs> What's that? Um, snap. It's my favourite episode as well. From oh, the yeah. I, it's a, it, I, I love that episode. There's, there's a, a lot of good in there. and uh, uh, But there's, you know, so many episodes of so many great moments. Um, uh, it's, it's more about those moments that I love and, and, you know, having watched it now and now I'm showing it to my kids, mm-hmm. um, we've watched almost all of the original series. Now we're, we're into the third season of next gen and, um, coming up on the best of both worlds, my kids' heads are going to explode. Um, but, um, yeah, there are moments like, um, well, I, you know, <laughs> things like, uh, in uh, at the end of of um, the episode with Mr. Flint, when mm-hmm. Kirk is in his quarters and he says, "We put on a pretty poor show," and I wish I could forget her, and then he kind of falls asleep at his desk, and McCoy comes in, and McCoy and Spock have this exchange about you know McCoy saying to Spock, "You'll never understand the things love will drive a person to," and um, he he gives this kind of flowery little speech. And then he leaves and before leaving says, I I wish he could forget her. And this moment where Spock is there alone in Kirk's quarters, Kirk is asleep with his head on the desk and Spock walks up, puts his hand on Kirk's head and says, forget. Think, you know, if you know Spock, you know, that's a big moment, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it's those character moments are the things that now stand out for me versus the episodes like I love Mirror Mirror. I love the Doomsday Machine. I love you know I, I love all those episodes. But but the moments where these things happen, uh, you know, um, where these characters are are allowed to shine, um, are kind of my favorite things now. Uh, Next Generation, I you know, uh, The Measure of a Man is one of my favorite episodes. Absolutely, season two uh, episode. <clears throat> yeah, and I also love The Defector, um, which I think is probably the not a very well-known episode, but it was one of Ron Moore's, I think, first episodes. And uh, it's this it's this great, you know, story about this Romulan who comes over and says that the Romulans are, are massing for war and he doesn't want to be a part of it. And so he gives us, you know, the location of this cloaked planet that they have and this whole thing. But at the end, there's this great turnaround where, uh, um, well, you know what? I'm not going to give the turnaround. I'm gonna, if you haven't seen that episode, The Defector... Watch Please it. watch it because it's it's really well put together. It's really a fun episode and has this great twist at the end. Um, but uh, but yeah, there, uh, you know, um, Deep Space Nine uh, in the pale moonlight is one of my favorites. Yeah, that's one of my favorites as well. You know, I just love the uh, the the whole song, like uh, moralizing and the agony that Cisco has to go through in, yeah. in order to song like bring the Romulans over to their side of the war. Yeah, it's a horrible, horrible choice, but it's it's this it's this commentary on war, you know, and what it drives people to, and what what's at stake, and what's it's a, it's a very complicated, very well done episode. A lot of DS Nine episodes are are rife with that, um, but in the Pale Moonlight is is one of my favorite episodes. There, um, Voyager, um, I guess Year of Hell. Mm-hmm. I, I you know I. I because of because of the fact that, that the show is going to go into syndication eventually, 
um, it, it strips away your ability to do a serialized thing like Discovery is doing. But um, but it would have been great if the, the Voyager wouldn't have been repaired, you know, and it would have gone on a couple episodes. We didn't hit that reset button. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been fun to, to explore, but um, but because of syndication, we, we couldn't really do that. Um, and Enterprise, well, I guess, you know, there. I know everybody loves the fourth season because it, it touches on a lot of um, a lot of things that kind of fall right out of the original series. Um, you know, it talks about the, why the Klingons have changed. It talks about the, um, you know, the eugenics wars. It talks about, um, I think they even have, uh, uh, who is it? It's not the Organians. Who is it that shows up? Uh, it's the Metrons, I think. I think so. Show up. Uh, so, you know, there's all this kind of stuff that relates to that, which, which is fine, but um, but I would have liked to understand more about the formation of the Federation and Starfleet as it is. <laughs> I think that would have been a much more fun exploration. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, that's uh, that's me. Yeah, I think I think people are getting that now, though, in the uh, Enterprise books that continued long after the series. Uh, it, yeah. It's like, I mean, they've gone into, you know, storylines and details about the Romulan Federation war and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's great. And, and stuff like that. I mean, I um, I think favorite ep- episode of Enterprise for me was actually from the first season, and um, I can't remember the name of, name of the episode off the top of my head. But it's it's the uh, it's I think it's Shuttle Pod One where 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 um, Reed and um, and Trip and Trip get get they they kind of uh, end up drifting yeah, on Shuttlecraft, and you know they they the it was just so like a great episode for both those actors and. You know the, the the relationship stuff that was developing between those two characters throughout the episode was just really, 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 really fun to watch. Yeah, that is a great episode, and uh, uh, one of the early on episodes as well. When uh, when they use the transporter for one of the first times, and you know they beam somebody up during a windstorm, and the transporter is not sophisticated enough to to separate everything out, and so this person beams up, and they have like sticks and leaves you know sticking out of their body in various places but uh, i that stuff like that was always fun like the the development of these things you know deflector shields phasers i mean it, i love that uh, i love that technical side of it mm-hmm. i mean you know t- you know from from the prequel point of view i think um you could argue that enterprise maybe worked better as a prequel series than discovery is to be honest in terms of sort of like uh not 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 as much has been not as much with Enterprise as actually messed messed about with with the continuity versus you know like holograms and spar drives in in Discovery. Well, it's far Enterprise is far enough away, you know, it's closer to us than it is to Kirk. So I, I think it was easier for us to to run with that. Um, you know, Discovery is a it, they have a a tougher time if they want to maintain certain aesthetics, design aesthetics, and things about. The original series, but you know they seem pretty free and clear to let a lot of that stuff go and just kind of do their thing. Um, which again, it's it's not hurting anything. I mean, I, you know, it 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 ruffles your feathers if you're an original series fan who who you know doesn't believe that there were holograms back then. But <laughs> you know, otherwise, and also they're they're telling one story over a serialized run of episodes where where you know. Enterprise didn't start doing that until the Zindi War thing, um, 
And that whole style of television, you know, I, th- I guess, I don't know what it started with, maybe The Sopranos or... Um, it started you know, with Babylon 5. So, oh, sorry. oh, Babylon 5, yeah. Yeah, Babylon 5 was the first first uh, sci-fi series of note to do it, and, and Sopranos came after. Because with Babylon 5, it was like this whole sort of like thing to do with the Shadow War, which went from through series, series 1 right through to the end of 4. Yeah, I've never seen the series, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I I was a fan of Babylon Five as well as Star Trek, and you know, and of course on the internet you couldn't be a fan of both. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. Like if you like Star Wars or Star Trek, yeah, yeah I love a, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, it's this it's this fictional battle that makes no sense. Mm, yeah, I mean, so uh, mo- moving on, I think favorite original series episode of mine. I just wanted to bring this up because I would have loved to see in a series developed of it. Um, is uh, a Simon Earth with Gary Seven. Sure. I'd love to have seen that developed into a series. Yeah, I guess they were close, but then it never went. But, uh, yeah, that, that would have been a fun series. I'm just wondering if it might be possible, you know, if, uh, if Discovery is successful, if it could end up with an Simon Earth spin-off. It's always possible. Yeah. There's, a, you know, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of dangling threads in the Star Trek universe that that you could pick up and run with and turn into series that would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, getting on to my final um, question, because I think we talked quite a bit about Discovery, um, although we haven't really moved on to it as such, but you you was um, involved with an animated project with Denise and Michael Nakuda um, around about 2007, was it? Yeah, actually, it wasn't with Mike and Denise. It was... Uh... It was with a guy named Doug Mirabello and uh, and another uh, co-writer friend of ours named Jose Munoz. It was the three of us. And um, uh, Mike and Denise and I just did Star Trek Remastered. But the animated series came out of uh, me and these other two guys. Um, yeah, it was, um, you know, there was a, the, the Enterprise was just getting ready to go off the air. And we maybe had a, a season or a season and a half left or something. And, you know, there was all this talk about how everyone was so tired of Star Trek. And it was the same, every show was the same formula. And, you know, and so um, Doug, who uh, towards the end of the series was Rick Berman's assistant uh, and is a a very kind of savvy, fun writer and uh, and and our friend Jose uh, as well. And, and so, well, it started with Doug and I, and, and we thought it would be kind of interesting after seeing the Clone Wars three-minute cartoon series. I don't know if you'd ever seen that. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, and each episode was like three minutes long, and then the next day they'd show another one. Uh, we thought that would be, if you lengthened the, the episodes, you know, um, we figured six minutes would be a good length. And you aired one long story on the Internet at StarTrek.com that it might be worth exploring. And so we developed a series about the USS uh, Excalibur, which gets destroyed in the Doomsday Machine. And so we had this story about how it gets restaffed and goes out and it's now the stories of, of, but it didn't, it didn't quite work out. And as we started talking about it, and and then I ended up having lunch with our friend Jose and I started asking questions like what's wrong with Star Trek today? Like, where is it broken? Where is it? What isn't it doing? And you know, there was the Enterprise was a prequel, but it was also a prequel at a time when a lot of people were doing prequels. 
And so we kind of locked on the idea that Star Trek should always be moving forward. And we came up with an idea of, how, you know, first of all, how do you change? How do you change it so it's not just ship exploring and the Federation's just bigger and Starfleet's just bigger and the ships are more advanced and, you know, I, I, how do you get around it so it's not just that? And there's something about the original series that I really liked in that when the Enterprise was out on the frontier, you know, there were times where they would say, and, and look, not a lot of it made sense technically, but, but dramatically, you know, there were times where, you know, we're not going to get an answer from Starfleet for two weeks and you've got to make this decision alone. And it's your decision will either um, solve this problem or lead to galactic war, you know, and so those are pretty high stakes. And and I missed that, you know, starting with the next generation, the ships could move so fast that they went back to Earth kind of regularly. I mean, it, I never really felt like they were out on the frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one thing. How do you how do you give the sense that that, you know, whatever ship you're on, you're out there and you're alone and it's you know, it's dangerous. That was one thing. Uh, another thing was exploration and meeting new civilizations. And, and how do you do that in a way that is not just the original series. So we came up with an idea that that there had been a war and somebody or some entity detonated a bunch of Omega particles, which were something that we found in Star Trek Voyager. Um, And what happens is if these Omega particles explode, it makes that area of space, this um, this certain distance in space, uh, very hard to navigate at warp speed. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to use impulse engines to, to you know, it, it, it relatively cuts off sectors of space. So we had this idea, what if some entity uh, detonated a bunch of these things between the Romulan homeworld and the Federation? And some planets got completely destroyed. Um, and like we, we had Andor being destroyed, not that the entire Andor race was wiped out, but that their planet was destroyed and the Federation immediately assumes, and there's enough evidence to, there's enough evidence to sort of point to the Romulans as being the culprits. And so of course, what remains of the Andorians says, we need to go punish the Romulans. They're the ones that have done this. And the Vulcans are in the midst of kind of negotiating with the Romulans. And they're like, no, 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 this is not, that didn't happen. But the Romulans didn't do this. We're, we're pretty sure of it. But the Andorians, because of the horrific nature of what happens, they get a lot of sway on their side and, and, and people kind of joining their cause. And the Vulcans say, if you will pursue this path, if you go down this path, we're going to secede from the Federation. And that's what happens. So the Vulcans secede, um, the Andorians kind of uh, spark this, this war call in the feder- within the Federation, the Klingons um, join in the battle, and uh, eventually their homeworld gets overtaken by the Romulans, and the, the Klingons become this kind of very fierce, spacefaring, nomadic race, and uh, uh, and and so this all of this happens fifty years before our show takes place, and in that fifty years, what's happened is they've the, the Federation and the Romulans fight this war, but because of the Omega particles, the war is like trench war. It's you know you can only move so far. It takes forever to cross these zones of dead space, and it's it's. Um, 
carved up the Federation in such a, a way that there are, you know, Federation worlds that now it's going to take us five years to travel to. Uh, who knows what's you know how it's going to change when they don't have the support of the rest of Starfleet and and so it's it, it the universe the or, or the galaxy is a is a much different place and uh, the Federation becomes very insular it becomes less about seeking out new life and new civilizations I mean it becomes more about self preservation and so. Um, that's something we've never seen happen within the Federation. So it becomes a little bit like Brexit, like the UK leaving the <laughs> yeah. EU. <laughs> yeah, and so it's, you know, it's this, this uh, over the, the next 50 years, Starfleet becomes a shoot first, ask questions later kind of organization. And, and the idea of exploring is just gone. It's like, no, we, you know, trying to maneuver through all these, these dead spaces is just, we can't risk our ships to go on these super long voyages. So we're just going to carve out our section of space and we're going to um, shore up our borders. And so there's these defense drones out on all the borders. And all Federation ships do now is maintain the status quo and, and survey the perimeter in case of attack. And so the, the you know, they, they fought this war with the Romulans for long enough that both sides said, okay, we're just wasting our resources and we're never going to know you're not going to beat us and we're not going to beat you. So the Romulans decide to retreat and we decide to retreat into our space and, and everybody kind of calls it a day. Uh, the Klingons are a casualty and have become this kind of, and they hate the Federation and they hate the Romulans um, and because the Federation wasn't there to help them when they lost their planet. And so there's all of that going on. Uh, the Vulcans haven't been heard from in 50 years and we start the ep that's all backstory that you learn and you we start on a, a ship called the enterprise but it's not a ship of the line it's a it's a kind of medium sized destroyer and it surveys the perimeters of federation space it does a lot of diplomatic runs and it's not a particularly attractive ship um and that's that was one of the things i kind of pushed for which is I want people to look at this enterprise and think, ugh, that's that's not a cool looking ship. But as the series unfolds, you learn to love the ship. And mm -hmm. it, it's kind of analogous to what the entire show was about, which is the captain of this ship is in a lot of ways a renegade in that he's a student of history and he believes in what the Federation used to stand for. And he comes from a place where um, he and his family, when he was young, traveled from an area that was cut off into main Federation space. And so he's learned a lot about how to navigate through these dead spaces. And what happens is they're on the border doing their thing. And he has a first officer who's very by the book of Starfleet today, which is the shoot first, ask questions later. Uh, and so what happens is a, an alien ship starts coming across the border and these Federation Starfleet defense drones blow it up and we find a life sign. The Enterprise scans it and finds a life sign in the wreckage and beams it aboard. And it's this alien no one's ever seen or heard of. And they bring it to sickbay and it's trying to talk to them. And they're, the universal translator is not helping. And when it dies, the alien dies, it opens one of its four hands, and inside its hand is an old comm badge from kind of TNG era. Wow. 
And so the captain makes this decision. He, he says to the crew, this, this creature came here, you know, it, it knows who we are and it's, it risked its life to come here. It's asking for help. I'm certain of it. So we're going to go cross the border, which no Federation ship has done in the last 50 years. We're going to leave Federation space and we're going to go see what is going on with this species and if it needs our help. And of course, the entire crew rallies against him. You know, there are, there's scuttlebutt, and you know, it's not a mutiny kind of thing. But but everyone's like, this guy's crazy. And he leads the Enterprise across the this border into unknown space, and they get into this adventure where they help save this entire alien species. And it's the first friends we've made in you know 50 years. And so he, he, you know, at the end of the episode, he comes back to Federation space and he gets an earful from the Admiralty who, you know, denounces tactics, denounces, you know, breaking of every regulation to do all this stuff. But then they also say, but, you know, there are a lot of us here that that remember what it used to be like. And we could use somebody like you. Uh, We're not changing the way the Federation works. But if you want to go out and explore a little bit, we'll back that. And so that's kind of how this starts. And so it's this enterprise and this captain, his name was Captain Chase, and he uh, and his crew and his crew slowly learns to to embrace what he is always embraced, which is let's seek out new life and new civilizations. Let's, you know, let's change who we are and stop being afraid and let's start making friends and and doing what the Federation used to do. And so that's kind of the the premise of the story. And of course, we had all these, you know, different characters. We had, you know, our security guards, they they call themselves the Red Shirts. And um, during the war, they, with the Romulans, the Federation and Starfleet decide to experiment with captured Borg technology that they have. And so if you join Starfleet security now, you have this thing implanted on the side of your head called a bug. And what it allows you to do is immediately tie into any other security guard on your ship. So you can see what they're seeing. You can communicate without talking. You don't need communicators. And and so they're this super elite squad. And they have all these kind of cool little devices that they use, like... You know, like transporter bombs where you, you, you throw a bomb at a door and it attaches to the door and then the door just beams away. And, you know, I mean, so all these kind of little things. And then we had uh, a doctor, we had a, an alien engineer named Mr. Zero. Uh, and so we had all this stuff. And, but we had, the, we had the whole season, the first season plotted out and we learned who started the war. And mm-hmm. and that became a shocking revelation when you learn who it is. And... Um, and so we spoke to uh, the folks at StarTrek.com about it. But at the at the time that this happened, we talked to StarTrek.com, and then CBS and Paramount split as companies. Mm-hmm. And StarTrek.com went with CBS, and so they sent us instead to Paramount Home Video. And they thought instead of doing it as little snippets, because nobody knew who really owned the rights to do Star Trek in what format as when the company split, there was still a lot of dust to settle. And so Star Trek, the folks at StarTrek.com suggested to us, why don't you go to Paramount Home Video and see if they'll release it as short videos on, on VHS or CD or whatever, or DVD. And so we went to them and they were 
really excited about it, but they said, we, we don't have the rights to do it. And we've checked and you got to go to CBS. So we went back to CBS and we were working with a guy named John Couch there at the time. And he had us go get budgets. And so we, we, I mean, we moved along quite far. I mean, we had solid budgets. We had three or four scripts written. We had, um, what it would take to put the show on. And then CBS fired everyone at Star Trek.com and closed it down. <laughs> and, uh, and John Couch was let go. And so it was just this, this domino effect of everywhere we went, there was a door got closed for some reason. And as we were trying to figure out how to remaneuver this and who we needed to talk to, uh, it was announced that JJ Abrams was going to do his, 2009 movie and so that shut everything down while he was doing the movie paramount and cbs couldn't do anything else relating to star trek mm. and so that was kind of the end of that and you're... so now it just sits online i mean there's a place you can go where we have a website for it and um <coughs> and everything we we've done lives there so you can see the uniform designs the ship designs uh, you can read the first few scripts there's uh, storyboards i mean it's a it's kind of all there do you not think uh, there'd be possibilities to like, maybe run it out as a comic book series or, or a series of novels, you know, given that, you know, Pocket Books it, still has the... It's possible. I mean, I you know, it's just, it, it got to the point where we all kind of had to go live our lives and, and um, it wasn't easy for us to devote as much time to it as we... Mm. as we could in the past. And so, and you know, these things are very time-consuming and... Um, and so I, you know, look, we, we always, I guess, kind of in the back of our minds, we talk about it every now and then. And, and it was funny because we, <laughs> Discovery had some parallels to things we were doing. It was funny because every time a Discovery show would air, uh, you know, our friend Jose would, would send Doug and me a text going, did I just hear them say this? Did they just show <laughs> this? And he would, you know, attach our image, you know, from, from what we had done and, um, you know, so it's, it's just the cyclic nature of these things. I mean, it's, uh, so I don't know. I suppose it's, I suppose it's, a, it's possible, but I don't know. It's, mm. I think it would be hard to, yeah. it would be hard for us to, to rally the time to do it. Yeah. And having door slammed in such a way on you must have felt like a real kick in the nuts as well. You know, it hurt because, um, yeah, it hurt because we were so close and, um, it, you know, everyone loved it. I mean, it was, it was really catching on in every place that we would go to and people would send us away to do budgets and do, you know, figure out how to talk to an animation company, let us know, you know, and then it would, something would happen. It would go away. <laughs> I, I, I first remember reading about it, um, on, on track web. Um, cause I used to, um, I used to do a little bit of a transcribing for Gus over at track web. Uh, uh -huh. when, when, when Trek Web was still still up and running sort of thing um, and you know I transcribed for Gus and uh, I, I got to know Gus quite well you know over at Trek Web because there was a lot of back and forth between between me and him because at that particular time um, Star Trek magazine was a UK exclusive it wasn't available in the US like it is now and and that's the um, and, and, and that's how um that's how Gus and I got to know each other because I, I transcribed snippets of the Rip Berman interviews that were in the, every issue of Star Trek magazine. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so that was me. <laughs> um, 
and um, you know and I was also very very mindful about how much I used and what what quotes I actually used from from the magazines and and I'd always try and pick the quotes I knew were going to get a fan reaction you know whether whether it be positive or negative I'd always right. go for the quotes that would get get the fan reaction you know um, but yeah. that, but I, I kind of got to know about the Star Trek series that he was working on, you know, through Gus because he was posting um art, you know, lots of artwork and I think he I think he probably interviewed you a few times or someone over at Trek Web did. Or it might have been yeah. excerpts from yeah. TrekMovie.com at that time. And we did and we did. We developed there there was a lot of character design that we did. Um I mean, it was uh, it was really exciting to to work on, and and we were really pleased with what it came out. I know, you know, I gave an interview once that said it's, you know, the 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 uh, the show takes place. It's a dark time for the Federation. Everyone everyone locked onto that sentence, and they are you know fans, of course, on the internet. Oh, we don't need another dark Star Trek series. They're tired of you know, and that's not what the show was about at all. It was a hopeful show about you know, uh, overcoming our our. Yeah, our short sightedness, and you know, doing what Starfleet does best, and exploring, and uh, but you know, when people lock onto a line, that's kind of how it goes. But I just sent you the, uh, I just sent you the website, so you can cool. uh, you can peruse all our stuff there. Um, I think everything's there. I'll definitely bookmark that and have a look. I mean, it's like um, it's it, it gave me interest back then, and um, you know, and obviously I didn't know where to go for it online because there's so many Star Trek sites and so many sub pages and sub directories on the on the Star Trek dot com. Right. Uh, you know, it's kinda of hard to navigate when you like over fifty years worth of content. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um so I'm I'm gonna look forward to reading that. And um you know, Dave, it's been great having you on the show. Um thank oh, you. Oh thank that. you so much. It's been fun. I I love to talk about Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, just before I do go, I, have you got any convention appearances or anything coming up that that you'd like to like uh, you know quickly plug? I don't. Um, no, I don't uh, actually. I you know, um, no, I don't. No? Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm on Twitter. If people uh, certainly want to talk about Star Trek, um, you can find me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, my uh, I don't know my handle. I guess. Is um, it's LT means hope. LT means hope. So that's at LT means hope. Right, and it uh, so it looks like it means help, but it, it, yeah, it looks like it means hope, but it's really Lieutenant means hope. I mean, the way it came out mm-hmm. um, for various reasons, but <laughs> but that's where I am on Twitter, and uh, yeah, I love talking about Star Trek and comic books and tabletop gaming and all kinds of things. So uh, by all means, hit me up. I will do. I, you know, look out for Fongo. Um, I'm at Sci-Fi Pulse, so I'll, I'll certainly add, add you to my uh, my list of people to Fongo. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do that to you right now. Hey, everybody. This is Daniel Corey, writer of Image Comics Moriarty and Red City and Danger Cats Ludworth, and you are listening to SFP Now. And that wraps up another episode of SFP Now. Um... I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Um, if you want to uh, subscribe to our channel, you can do so by going to uh, iTunes and um, and Stitcher and just doing a search for Sci-Fi Pulse Radio and uh, just hit subscribe. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll be back at you again soon.